Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. In the extreme north of Laos, in Pongsalive Province, lies a tiny village home to around 24 households. Until recently, it was a mono-ethnic Camus village. The Camus have had a historically ambivalent relationship to the national majority in contemporary Laos. But this village is also home more recently to the Aka, another ethnic group that have been described as state evaders because they seek to avoid lowland politics and who migrated to northern Laos only in recent decades. This small hamlet is a window into Laos's march into a particular type of post-colonial modernity where massive infrastructure projects, inter-ethnic tensions, spirit beliefs and animistic practices coexist and collide. To share the stories of this hamlet, which will give the pseudonym of San Jing, I am joined by Dr Paul David Lutz. David recently received his PhD from the University of Sydney's Department of Anthropology and also has an MA in Intercultural Education. He's an honorary associate of the School of Social and Political Sciences, a sessional teacher in the Department of Anthropology, and a Sydney Southeast Asia Centre writing fellow. Prior to undertaking his PhD, David worked for several years as a rural development advisor in Laos and Vietnam. David, thank you for joining us on SEAC Stories. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. David, we call this podcast SEAC Stories, and of course you are an anthropologist, so storytelling is an essential part of your research. So I want to frame our discussion today as a series of stories. Are you okay with that? Very much. Thought you might be. So you're an early career researcher um, and you've got this PhD in anthropology, but you actually have a background in development. Can you tell us about your work in development and what brought you to Laos? Sure. So I initially came to Laos in 2009 as a community income generation advisor for a UNODC project working with former opium growers. So Pongsali, among many things that make Pongsali stand out, is the fact that it was um, for a long time Laos' major opium-growing province. And Laos itself, of course, being one of the main opium-growing countries for a long time in the world alongside Burma and Afghanistan. And um, in the early 2000s, for various reasons we don't need to get into, um, the Lao government got very serious about clamping down on opium growing. And in the course of that, many uplanders in Pongsali um, of various ethnic groups lost their main source of income, their main cash crop. And uh, this is where I came in to sort of look at what other strengths and potentials there were in these villages, which had um, in some cases gone through a dramatic economic decline as a consequence of opium eradication. So anything from handicrafts to tourism. Um, There was one village, um, it turned out they were growing amazing high quality cotton, but weren't aware of the fact because they'd never really traded sort of beyond their valley. Um, So building market linkages between these communities, looking at local strengths, and yet basically trying to generate um, other sources of legal income for people that had lost opium as a cash crop. And does this part of Laos lend itself to agriculture? You said that these villages were growing really high quality cotton. Was it quite easy for them to do so? That particular village that I um, that I mentioned with regards to the cotton, that's an ethnic Taidam village that is located in a valley and um, has access to flatland and actually also grows wet rice, which is an exception in Pongsali. So um, only about 10% of the province area is suitable um, flatland for wet rice cultivation. The overwhelming majority of Pongsali is mountainous. 
Um, so you would have Sweden agriculture in most places. So that rotational slash and burn scenario that you have in, of course, many parts of upland Southeast Asia. Um, there has, of course, in recent years been... Um, I hesitate to use the word intrusion or or, or an, a growing presence of uh, plantations, so banana or rubber. But it's certainly not the agricultural heartland by any stretch of Laos. That would be um, certainly more in the center and south of Laos, places like Savanakit or Bolikamsai. Um, it's very, very much uh, Swedening and also a um, very forested province. So uh, hunting and gathering um, traditionally plays a big part in livelihoods as well. Yeah, so speaking of livelihoods with this shift away from opium growing, what were they replacing um, opium with in terms of deriving an income and, and, you know, generating livelihoods? So in terms of cash crops, uh, which was not really my focus, um, I looked at sort of other venues, including, as mentioned, things like tourism and handicrafts. Um, the decline in opium coincided with a boom in cardamom, um, Chinese cardamom, what locals call makneng guangdong, um, where the price skyrocketed um, sort of in the period from the early 2000s to around 2017-18 and really only crashed um, with the recent uh, collapse in demand from China in the context of COVID. Um, so that was um, certainly in the village where I did my ethnographic research, um, cardamom, in some places quite literally took the place of opium. So former opium growing sites now became cardamom gardens. Okay, so you've just mentioned your ethnographic research. Talk us through how you shifted from being a development consultant to somebody doing ethnographic research in this part of the world. Sure. Um, so as mentioned, um, I began my development worker career, quote unquote, with um, UNODC in Pongsali. And this is a time when Pongsali was still very much a remote and underdeveloped province. This has certainly changed a lot in the last decade or so. And I was like like many Westerners when they first come to remote parts of Laos, a very enchanted. And um, there's a saying often in development worker circles that you sort of you lose your heart in your, um, you know, you're the first place that you work. Um, and this was certainly in my case, um, also the case. And um, I went on to work for other projects, um, both in central and southern Laos and also in Vietnam, both in the northwest. So sort of on the other side of the border of Pongsali, places like um, Lao Cai and Lai Chau, um, and also in the central highlands of Vietnam. Um, and I became rather disillusioned with the development industry. Um, I think here's not the place to go into the details. Um, you know, there's plenty has been said. I'm thinking of people like David Moss, Tanya Lee. James Scott, who have critiqued um, both sort of high modernist state-driven development and the international development industry. And I worked a lot with sort of these big juggernaut um, UN or development bank funded projects. So not so much with small idealistic NGOs. And um, my desire to do a PhD was in a very basic sense driven by this uh, notion that we were intervening in communities that we really didn't know. Um, and often um, to the detriment. So there were cases where I felt um, that the best we could do in certain areas was nothing. And if you were throwing, you know, millions of dollars or euros at something and you feel like the best you can do is nothing, then um, maybe you're in the wrong line of work. Um, so I really had just this desire to know what was going on um, in these upland areas uh, where where I'd worked and only ever stayed, you know, for a day or two, maybe working in villages. And mind you, that's a lot more than many um, development consultants who would only um, certainly in Vietnam, you know, maybe drop in for an hour or two, do a quick data collection exercise and then, you know, have some uh, grand idea on how to uh, change life in that place. So, yeah, it was it was really just just wanting to know and wanting to sort of switch career paths. Mm. So that is a huge change if you're just spending a day or two in these communities and then all of a sudden you're doing this really immersive um, field work. Can you tell us more about this experience of doing field work and, and perhaps, um, 
you know, do you have language facility, for example? And what was it like being a Westerner, um, spending extended time living in these communities? Sure. Um, so when it came to choosing a field site for doing my ethnography, um, as mentioned, I'd developed this knack for Pong Sali based on my work with the UN there. Um, but I didn't want to go to a village um, where I previously worked as a development worker, even though there were certain villages, including the one that grows that grows that amazing cotton that I mentioned, where I'd established good relationships and where people knew me and where I felt I could sort of hit the ground running. But um, of course, you know, there would be problems in terms of expectations, you know, having come there with something to offer um, with a big development project. And then, you know, all of a sudden coming, um, hey, I'm back. I want to stay here for a year, but I just really want to kind of hang out and find out what's uh, what's going on in your lives. I thought that would create conundrums. So I went back to Pong Sali, but to a village that I hadn't actually worked in um, in development. Initially, people were... Um, they were unsure what to make of me. Um, so they'd had experience with other development workers. Um, there was a sense of apprehension. Um, initially, like some some people were worried, um, you know, that um, hosting me would cost money or um, create problems with the state. Um, certainly having prior experience in Laos, both in terms of knowing the language. So I spoke Lao pretty fluently um, even bef before I started my fieldwork and sort of knowing the ropes of how to uh, behave and move around in a village and um, create trust. Um, also dealing with the bureaucracy in Laos. That's a whole other story, right? Getting getting the permit even to do research and sort of maintaining those relationships. Um, so in terms of my interest in studying the impact of development, um, there there was, of course, a reflexive element to that, because if I want to look at how people engage development, um, of course, one place to look at is, you know, how people engage me, be, because I sort of stood for, you know, this um, modernity, if you will, that many people aspire to, right? Someone who'd, you know, traveled, had education, had seen the world, um, had, uh, according to them, access to um, absurd amounts of wealth, um, you know, everything relative of course, I was, you know, a fairly humble PhD student um, and still am not rich by any stretch. But, um, you know, certainly from their point of view, they projected a lot of um, hopes and aspirations into me also. So sort of um, this became a thing then also in my fieldwork, reflecting on how people engage with um, with me. Maybe just to, to give an example. So um, in terms of spirit healing, which is a big issue in the village when people get sick. So people often uh, would find themselves negotiating with spirits that had stolen the life force of a sick person. Um, and this could include things like um, signing a contract. So a shaman would facilitate the signing of a contract between the sick person and the spirit to sort of ritually negotiate the release of life force and then, you know, contribute to that person getting better. And um, initially, people didn't want me to join these ceremonies because they felt I was an irritant to spirits um, that I would sort of, you know, ruin the process. Um, but what later happened is people became aware of what I could offer them. I um, was often invited. People wanted me to stay close. Um, people wanted me to sort of sign the contracts that were um, that were drafted between them and the spirits that had made them sick. So yeah, there were, there were various ways in which um, me as a person shaped uh, their experience of development. And of course, I let a lot of that um, in classical anthropological manner um, flow into the thesis. How long did that process take from, um, you know, this perspective that you're, you were not welcome at these um, animist practices or ceremonies to being considered like an essential part of the ceremony? 
Um, that varied uh, with different people. So um, there were four or five families within the village that I ended up staying with uh, for extended periods. So everything from a month to six, seven months. And of course, with those families, um, trust was built quicker and more easily. But I remember even with uh, one of the families that I became very close with, um, this is about three months into my field work, uh, we were just setting up a spirit healing ceremony um, on the edge of the forest. And there's a sort of a very rickety road um, leading along the ridge where this village is located. And there were two Vietnamese traders. This is at the height of the rainy season, right? So it's August. Everything's very muddy. And they were sort of driving up this very muddy, slippery road and crashed into the thicket. Um, and I was busy taking pictures of the spirit healing ceremony. And people got angry with me. Why are you not taking pictures of these Vietnamese traders that just crashed their bike? Why are you not helping us to get this road? Road paved, right? We want access uh, to the market. We want traders to be able to come. I mean, these are these are the things that you should that you should be looking at. Um, I mean, there were certain you know key experiences, as said, um, in terms of you know signing a contract for a healing ceremony that then at least for a time turned out to be efficacious. Um, having encounters with um, with people from the government that had um, studied and lived in Germany. Um, so I'm from Germany originally, and you know giving. The whole speech to villagers about how you know Germany is a socialist country. Many people in Laos still think that, and how Germany has helped Laos, and uh, Germany is a modern country, the country of technology and science. So, people really just appreciating that I was someone that could offer something to them. Um, and again, this this played out differently for different people. And I think you know, if everyone in the village loves you equally um, after a year of doing ethnographic fieldwork, you probably haven't found that much about what is really going on. I think the degree to which you become immersed in a village setting also reflects in, you know, the positions you take, right? Not everyone loves each other in a village. People might have arguments, um, you know, and if you align yourself with one household, with one family, you know, that comes to the detriment of relationships with another. So, yeah, lots of dynamics were, um, were going on there. I think you're raising some really interesting points about, um, you know, the role of anthropologists and anthropology in the field, how you position yourself in relation to the community that you're ostensibly studying. But I'd like to take the conversation in the direction of your growing interest in local animus cosmology, and in particular, how, um, in, in your observation, how this cosmology has shaped local engagements with Lao modernity. Can you expand on that? Sure. So this is something I touched on obliquely um, a second ago. So um, the Kumu people of the village of Sanjing, where I did my research, they are um, what you could describe as animists. So um, they share their life world with a plethora of spirits, um, ranging from natural spirits, so spirits associated with topographical places, associated with natural elements, and also ancestral spirits. So um, spirits of your forebearers that have been buried in the ground and sort of join the pantheon, if you will, of um, of quote-unquote natural spirits. And what these spirits do is they channel life force and vitality to the living. So there is this notion of mal um, among the Kumu, and certainly in my field site village, um, this is very much associated with the vitality and fecundity of the earth, of the soil. So um, you have spirit um, relationships between human and spirits that sort of channel this vi vitality and life force. 
Um, and as mentioned, when people get sick, very often sort of the, the local notion is that um, these spirits have stolen life force and vitality mal, from humans, um, usually due to some transgression on the place where these spirits reside. So this could be something like burning um, a spirit that resides in a piece of forest where you slash and burn to clear land to um, grow your um, rice to make a Sweden field. So this often this involves um, negotiating sort of the release or the return of that life force to you. And this is a point that's actually important, uh, this notion of negotiation. So people don't so much um, worship spirits as they deal with them for better or worse. Spirits can be nurturing or devouring. And people that have, you know, status, have ritual prowess, so have spells, have amulets, um, have uh, wealth even, um, they might be able to outdo or co-opt spirits and actually, you know, use spiritual power to their ends. And this is um, what I found in the course of my fieldwork, which actually shapes engagements with development, this notion that, um, that you share a life world with spirits and spirits actively participate in what's going on. And the thing to mention also here is that uh, the people, the village that I worked in is a village that found itself on the winning side of Laos civil war. So fought with the eventually victorious communists and um, very much sought to engage the socialist project of modernization in Laos to their benefit. So there's a lot of people from the village that have been, that are members of the party, the ruling um, socialist party uh, that are in various levels of the state apparatus. And so there's a sense of identification and stakeholdership. At the same time, there is still this desire to maintain these relationships with spirits to um, sort of have the proverbial best of both worlds. So, for example, when the socialist government um, repressed spirit cults, um, certainly in the late 1970s, after the takeover in 1975, um, villagers took this actually as an opportunity to sort of um, move up a notch vis-a-vis spirits, to abandon certain customs and assert their power over the spirits of their area. Also, in terms of how history is told, um, so there's very much this pretense or assertion that that there is a congruence between being good modern socialists and being, you know, spiritually prowessful or powerful kumu. So... um, when villagers remember their participation in Laos civil war, they often tell the story of a, a local from a neighboring village called Bunchan. And um, Bunchan had a lot of ritual spiritual prowess. He knew many spells. Um, he had an amulet, a magical amulet called the Glang Kong. So these are stones that you find in the forest when the spirits of your ancestors come to you in dreams and sort of tell you where to find these amulets. He had that sewn under his left armpit. And according to villagers, this made him invincible. Bullets couldn't not penetrate him. And um, according to the local narrative, he was very much involved in winning the war for the communists. So they'll say things about, you know, he liberated the whole province. Um, He fought CIA-backed militias and this and that. The other thing, though, about his spiritual prowess, about Bunchan's spiritual prowess, is that it made it impossible for him to be photographed. So people said um, that you could take a picture of him, but he wouldn't be on it. And I think this nicely captures this idea that uh, the Kumu want to find a place for their spiritual power in the modern state, in the narrative of the Laos civil war that brought the communists to power that also benefited them very much, but they're unable to do so by modern means. Photography, of course, being, you know, a sort of quintessentially modern means of capturing having evidence for something. So there's very much this impetus to find a place. Yes, our spiritual power matters in this modern world. Did you observe that during your fieldwork? I assume you were trying to take photos as part of your fieldwork, but perhaps also using other other methods of data collection. Did you observe any resistance to that? 
Um, in terms of taking pictures, um, people, so people, they have a very ambivalent oscillation between, on the one hand, wanting to show their customs, wanting to assert, look, this is what we do and it works, but also having having this sense of embarrassment and shame because they're, of course, very aware that, uh, you know, the ritual practices that they engage in are officially frowned upon in Laos, um, that, that the state doesn't sanction this. So again, there's this oscillation between wanting to show that their spiritual rituals work and sort of wanting to portray themselves as good modern Marxist um, members of their state. And often people would, um, when they would share spirit stories or they would have me participate in a ritual, they'd be like, oh, we're, we're just doing this, um, you know, this is just our culture, this is not really something you know that we take seriously or i'm just telling you about for example this history of bunchan that i mentioned i'm just telling you this story because that these are the stories we tell but then often they'll get up and they'll you know they'll engage in a spirit ritual which might cost them you know months worth of income and which they actually take very seriously in terms of photos, I actually have a few where I try to take a picture of a of a spirit healing setting, and 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 I and I have sort of um frowning faces looking at me. So there were um ethical issues, of course, also to negotiate there, and certainly not everything I encountered and witnessed has found its way into my thesis and will will find its way into my publications. Yes, of course. Okay, so Sanjing, this this hamlet that you were working in is right up there, close to the border with China. How does local cosmology and and history telling shape the villagers' engagements with China's growing power in this part of the world? So. One of the things about this village is that it sits very close to a Chinese hydropower dam. So um, as many of your listeners would know, China has been um, at the forefront of investing in hydropower in Laos and also in terms of um, land concessions for plantations, etc. So um, in Pongsali, there's four dams. All of them export electricity to China. And one of them, which was completed in 2015, sits right at the foot of the ridge where Sanjing is located. And the thing about this dam is that it has had a direct impact on the local cosmology. So um, the people of Sanjing, as mentioned, they have these relations with spirits and they seek to channel life force and vitality through maintaining and negotiating with these spirits. And the spirit lord of their area resided in a mountain that sits right next to the dam. And as part of the concession that was granted by the Lao government to the Chinese for the dam was the right for the Chinese to mine this mountain. So villagers say that they, um, the Chinese came with big trucks and jackhammers and drills and they drilled very deep into this mountain where the spirit lord resides and they stole the gold um, owned by this spirit lord, took it back to China. Um, and there was a direct confrontation. So according to locals, the spirit lord resisted the Chinese building the dam. So they speak of many um, Chinese engineers and foremen dying, people taking jackhammers and going crazy and killing them themselves. So there is this narrative that puts spiritual prowess and spirits very much in close context with um, these modernization narratives. But what ultimately happened, to make a long story short, is that the Chinese chased away this spirit and have very much um, taken the place of preeminence in the local area, which this spirit once held. And Villagers have an ambivalent relation to this. So on the one hand, the dam has destroyed much of the local fisheries. On the other hand, the very departure of the spirit from the mountain has opened up this mountain for cash crops. So I mentioned earlier that cardamom has replaced opium as a major cash crop. And what has happened is that um, the departure of this spirit has enabled people to grow cardamom, to grow this cash crop on the mountain. Because of course, while the spirit was there, this was a um, forbidden territory for villagers. So it's very much a double-edged sword in terms of um, how they view Chinese interest intrusion into their landscape and their cosmology.
Mm. And I think what you're doing with um, with your research, what you did with your PhD, what you're doing with your research now by arguing that these spirits are worth attending to, in fact, you say that spirits are back with a vengeance, is you're really telling us what animistic practices can tell us about people's experience of and relationship with development and um, really encouraging us to pay these spirits more attention. Can you wrap up by telling us how upland Southeast Asians, particularly in Laos, but perhaps more broadly, are engaging nation building and development and China's rise and how they're doing so by taking these spirits seriously? Sure. So this, I think, harks back to where we began in terms of my my history as a development worker. So um, while in academia, you have certainly in recent years, this notion of re-enchantment that, you know, um, this old idea that development necessarily entailed rationalization or disenchantment and that, you know, spirits and religious practices would recede in the face of modernization has not played out, not in the West, I would argue, and certainly not in Southeast Asia. And often in development, I certainly found that um, we assume that, you know, uplanders' religiosity or animist practices are somehow an adjunct or irrelevant sideshow to, you know, the hard economics and politics of development. But as I just sought to outline in the story of the Spirit Lord of Sun Jing's Mountain, they, they are often directly involved and directly encountering the forces of development, in this case, a Chinese hydropower dam, with practical, tangible consequences in a socio-economic sense. So in this uh, case, the liberation, if you will, of the mountain from the Spirit Lord and the expansion of cash crops, which of course neatly coincides with the Lao government's drive to sort of move people away from subsistence uh, towards cash crops and market engagements. So if we peer under the surface and um, take spirits seriously as active participants that um, that literally share the world of the people that are very much at the forefront of China's resource frontier and development in general, um, we will find that, um, that there's direct um, political and economic consequences to the roles that they play. I did mention at the beginning, David, that you are SIAC's writing fellow. Are you able just to take a few minutes to share with us what you're working on as part of your writing fellowship? Sure, absolutely. So I am a SIAC writing fellow. Many thanks again, um, to SIAC for uh, offering me that position. And in the context of that, I am working on developing one of my PhD chapters into an article. And the article is based on a chapter where I discuss relations between Sanjing's Kamu, so the autochthonous population of the village, and a group of ethnic Akka that have recently migrated into the village. So um, as you mentioned in the intro, the Akka are um, fairly recent migrants into northern Laos. So many came in the 19th century um, from what is today southern China. And the thing about the Akka is that they fought on the other side of the war. Um, so they did not fight with the eventually victorious communists. Uh, they fought with the US-backed royalist government. And this history very much inflects inter-ethnic relations in Sanjing. Um, you mentioned in the intro, um, you spoke of, of inter-ethnic tensions. I perhaps wouldn't go as far to call them tensions. There is more um, There is more a sense of the Kamu orientalizing the Akka as backward, superstitious people that found themselves on the wrong side of history and the Kamu sort of having taken it upon themselves to civilize the Akka and make them good modern citizens of their socialist state. Um, and I describe these dynamics as a case of internal Orientalism. Mm, really interesting. Well, um, you've got the article coming out once it's finished, which is fabulous. And then we hope that we'll also see this turned into a book at some point. Yes, I certainly plan on uh, turning my thesis into a book um, again, also hopefully sooner than later. This is one of the things I have lined up for 2022. 
Well, thank you for sharing your research with us, David. Um, congratulations once again on the writing fellowship with SEAC. And uh, thanks again for sharing your, your wonderful research with SEAC Stories. Thank you. My pleasure. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.